If it isn't, you'll let me know. Is that right? All right. Let me know. Let me know your, que your questions, follow up. I'm sure we can't cover everything. So let's pray, all right? Lord, thank you for your kindness that you give us the word of God today. Thank you for um, that you are effective, that you are always using your word for the purposes that you have sent it. Um, so I stand here, Lord, not confident in my ability. Um, human eloquence really can't do anything. Uh, perhaps leave a momentary impression, but no real life change. So true life change comes from you, and I pray that you would help us to believe that. Help, uh, help me preach believing that you change lives. Help those who hear. Uh, help them believe as they are hearing this message. And um, we pray for your help in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Um, let me, uh, I think that's on my side here, uh, Lisa, so I, I'll stop that behavior. Um, good to see you. Good to be together. Acts chapter 8. Jesus is the king. He has risen. He has ascended. He is now expanding his kingdom. So the author, the human author of this book is Luke. He has his first volume called The Gospel of Luke. And this has got the second volume, uh, which is the book of Acts. There's 28 chapters in the book of Acts. It uh, covers the expansion of the church from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. And it ends with the Apostle Paul, who is in prison. Uh, we're going to see in just a couple of chapters the Apostle Paul, whose Jewish name was Saul. Uh, we're going to see his conversion to Christianity. But we've been introduced to Saul um, in a chapter, last chapter of uh, last parts of chapter seven. Um, a tragic thing has happened in the Book of Acts, and that is that um, a newly appointed deacon. Uh, named Stephen, who was a very godly man, was also a very much a prophet-like person. He was a, uh, an evangelist, and he was very bold. And one of the characteristics of being filled with the Spirit is boldness. So uh, Stephen is bold, and God moves in him um, to proclaim to the religious leaders in Jerusalem, who are called the Sanhedrin. And he proclaims to them, many of whom were responsible for the death of Jesus. He holds them accountable by giving them scripture, and he uses the illustrations from the life of Joseph in Genesis and the life of Moses, redeemers that God had sent, who were brothers, family members, who were rejected. So, he tells it directly, puts it to their hearts that they have been resisting the Holy Spirit. And they are in keeping with the general attitude of Israel throughout her history. Well, that didn't go over well. And uh, he was killed. And there was a young man standing by who was collecting the garments of those who were throwing stones at Stephen. And his, ma his name is Saul. So, in a very short way, Luke introduces us to a man who is dangerous. And in Acts chapter 8, we hear just a little bit more about uh, Saul. And that is that this persecution was 
all around the city of Jerusalem, and Saul was one of the key leaders of this persecution, persecution against the church, and Saul was dragging Christians out of their homes, and he was throwing them in prison. So he was a man with great rage. He's a very dangerous individual, and um, God has his uh, eye on him, and it's only a matter of time before his behavior will change. So, in Acts, we have this marvelous transition that takes place. The church, up to this point, has been in Jerusalem. And this amazing transition happens by the agency of one particular individual who is a pace setter in the church. His name is Philip. And he's actually listed as one of the original deacons. And Philip, as he is realizing Jerusalem is not the safest place to hang around right now, he travels to Samaria. Now, Samaria was a region nearby, bordered Jerusalem nearby, just very nearby, but Jerusalem people, Jews there, would regularly avoid Samaritans as a people. It's quite remarkable in the ministry of Jesus that he has sent his disciples off in one instance in John's Gospel, chapter 4, and Jesus is in Samaria by a well, And he is intentionally there in order to have a conversation with a Samaritan woman. And this is what we know as the somewhat famous woman at the well uh, relationship that Jesus begins with her and she comes to faith in Jesus. She discovers him as the Messiah. This is Jesus as a pace setter for the church as well. So this passage now is about Philip, the evangelist, who goes to Samaria. I want to share with you one more insight that there is a deep racial divide between the Samaritans and the Jews. In 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 24, there is a reference to an Assyrian king. This is not a Jewish king, Assyrian king, who had conquered the northern kingdom, and he comes along, And what he does to this region now called Samaria, he brings people that they have captured from other parts of the world, and he brings them, and they live now in this area called Samaria. So one of the reasons why the Jews did not interact with the Samaritans was that their ancestry was mixed. Do we all sense racism here? Okay. Uh, by the way, sometimes in the church we can all be very polite and go, but that doesn't sound right. That, yes, it is racism. Okay, so particularly what was troubling is that the Babylonians were brought back. And so people had Babylonian ancestry in Samaria. Well, if you know your Bible, Old Testament history, the Babylonians were the troublemakers and they were, that was bad news. Uh, so there is a long-held uh, racial tension between these two be, between these two groups. Philip is moved by God's spirit to go minister to the Samaritans. As we've been looking at this series, um, what we've been trying to do is we're trying to ask a question. 
what is it like at the heart level in this individual? What is the motive inside this individual? How, how does one become like this person? Stephen, bold, preacher. He knows the group he's speaking to have the capacity to kill people, and he's, he does it anyway. My question is, how do, how do you become that way? How does the gospel work in the heart where I, where I would become bold like that? So that's kind of the question we're asking. So when we think about Philip, we want to be listening to what the text is communicating to us. How is it that I become concerned to cross boundaries, racial boundaries, comfort boundaries? How do... And this is a question I'm not going to answer fully today, but it's a question that we begin to ask because it's now no longer time to wait around in Jerusalem. It is time to fulfill the Great Commission. And the Great Commission is this going into the world, the uttermost parts of the world, and bringing the gospel there. So I want you to think about that. I want you to think about that and... Keep the narrative kind of working in your heart. Keep thinking about that. Now, Samaria was a place that practiced what's called syncretism. Syncretism is a fancy theological word that means blending of all kinds of ideas. Israel practiced syncretism. This means that when they adopt the Canaanite gods and they begin to take in all the the gods, uh, the theologies of the gods, they are no longer true to the call of God through Yahweh. So, the, the Samaritans were syncretistic. They were blending and looking and searching for truth, and they were, they were even interested in the magic arts or black, the black arts um, magic. And it says here in our text that Samaria, Samaria was under the spell of one particular person, named Simon. And Simon was quite an egomaniac because he used his ability with magic to control what seems to be the whole area. That's quite remarkable. There are personalities like this. uh, And he was able to dominate and attract all kinds of attention and manipulate and control people. He kept them thinking that he may be, in fact, connected to the divine or representing the divine, he was someone great. And that's sort of code language for connected to the invisible world. Now, in this, war, in this time, when you are dealing with someone who's directly connected to the invisible world, and they can demonstrate it through some, some ability, that sets people back and that gets people thinking. I don't know if you've ever seen um, uh, people sort of caught in superstition. I don't know if you've ever uh, watched that, how superstitious ideas uh, control, control people. Um, I look around here, I think I see a lot of professionals, I think a lot of rational people, a lot of logical people, reasonable people. Um, but actually, the superstitions are, do exist. Uh, baseball players have a certain way of putting their socks on and preparing their uniform and all that. And they, they, they believe that if they kind of did this routine when they 
hit the home run last time. They actually have a very, they're very superstitious about the way they prepare before they go up to hit the ball. Kind of crazy. In this modern world, this goes on. Years ago, Marianne and I were in Hong Kong, and we had some friends who took us to this night market. And we're up like about midnight, and walking along these back streets, and if you want to eat snake, it's available there, and all kinds of crazy things to eat and to see. And there was one section of fortune tellers, really unique. Um, they had cages, uh, uh, bird cages, and uh, birds inside the cages. And so I'm watching, and there were these men gathered around. It's very serious, by the way. Oh, yeah, very serious. And one man is trying to find uh, a, an answer to a riddle or some question. And so he's paid money, and the bird now is under the command of the, you know, of the, of the, the money guy. And uh, so the bird then, it was really quite amazing. The bird uh, hops down, and there are three cards on the bottom of the cage, wooden cards. And the bird was trained somehow to like to look and to look, think, think, and then it was like, whoa, you know, it's like whoa, you know, it was the it was the drama. I, I was caught up in it too. The bird, this bird is amazing. This bird can tell the future. I mean, it, I was struck by that. So, um, and then the bird reaches down, you know, with his beak and turns it over, and then to the amazement of the crowd, the the, the fortune is told, and. Uh, Who's next? Who's next? Right? right? Amazing to watch the the magic, the the the, the spell binding kind of power that that, that moment um, had for for those men that night. When we think about this particular passage in the book of Acts, there is one key word that continues to to show up. The key word is attention. The key word is attention. Verse 10, they all paid attention to him. This is Simon. They all paid attention to him. From the least to the greatest, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him. Notice the repetition. Because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news with about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself, after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and miracles performed, he was amazed. The key concept here is attention. Attention. Philip has his attention on Samaria for good purposes. Simon has his attention, or has Samaria's attention, and then God gets everyone's attention through the preaching of the gospel. As you think about this passage, it's a passage about evangelism. It's a passage about sharing the good news about Jesus Christ. And in our day and age, um, it is remarkably difficult to get people's attention. In fact, the phrase that I continue to hear more and more is... Stay in the moment, or be in the moment, or live in the moment. There's bloggers about it. There's articles about it. People are struggling to stay in the moment. People are struggling to pay attention. 
And one of the remarkable gifts that God gives the people of Samaria is the gift of attentiveness to the kingdom of God. They are, by God's grace, turned away from superstition, turned away from the smoke and mirrors show, and they are now attentive to the words of Philip. And really what happens in preaching and in sharing the gospel, in living out the gospel, the invisible kingdom of God is in some way put on display. Some way it's put on display. I remember my conversion. I was 19 years old. The preacher's name was Bob Hobson, Fallbrook, California. As I have said so often, I just attended to be polite to the people who invited me. I had no intention of changing my life. Didn't feel I needed to have my life changed. Felt my life was just fine. But in the preaching of the gospel, the invisible kingdom of God became visible to me. Now, all I saw was a man in a three-piece suit, which was kind of odd for San Diego. Uh, But a man in a three-piece suit there, and something about him was communicating to me the reality of what's going on. That this is something I cannot turn away from. I cannot dismiss. Theologians call this effectual calling. This means that God overcomes all human resistance to the gospel. That God is effectually calling his church to himself. Effectual calling is all over the book of Acts, by the way. It's how people come to faith. So that day when I was converted, who knew what was going on in my heart? Well, I didn't even know. But Jesus became irresistible to me. Jesus, whom I thought I knew, thought I understood, who was really sort of lost in history, a nice teacher, moral teacher, good teacher. If you'd asked me if I was a Christian, I probably would have said yes. After all, I'm an American. By the way, America and Christianity are not synonymous. Okay, so make, make sure that's clear. So I mean, what I mean by this is that God got my attention. And something happened in me in the way that I now look at people. This is, a, this is what God did. This is the call upon all of us as we look out. For instance, when you see a crowd of people, begin to think as a follower of Jesus. Have the way you see this world different change different, into a different perspective. For instance, just this last Thursday night, Maris and I went to the farmer's market down in Kailua there. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a fun event. It's a great gathering. And I remember just taking a moment back, looking at all these people, thinking about Jesus as he looked at a crowd, that they were like sheep without a shepherd. So we let, we let the crowd communicate to us the, the need of, of people. And the gospel can break through and get people's hearts and get people's attention. In this moment, remember, this is a pretty dangerous thing to do. Philip moves into Samaria. 
an unfamiliar world, unfamiliar place, and he takes this risk to cross these boundaries. When God's Spirit is working in us, I am pretty confident that there is some sort of boundary that is going to be crossed that might, might be a little uncomfortable some sort of boundary, some sort of communication, some sort of connection, some sort of friendship, some sort of intentionality. There's something going on because the Spirit of God is moving us as God's generosity has come from heaven to earth. So it begins to move in us and move through us. God is able to get people's attention. Now, as I think about my sharing of my faith, um, see, I'm a professional at this, so when people find out that I'm a pastor, sort of the gig is up, right? You know, they know that I might try to convert them, right? So my conversations are somewhat different because I sometimes get all the tough questions <laughs> or, or I get people who want to sort of take me out. or <laughs> I get some really interesting... My, my, my stories of talking about Jesus are really different. Yours... Yours are very different than mine in, sense, in this sense. Because you can take the gospel into places that I may not be able to do. Your work, your associates, your neighborhood, your friendships. And just in living your life, and just living your life, you are thinking in terms of God's mission work through you. The conversations you have, the care you extend, the friendships you build. God will use you to get people's attention. Verse 8 tells us the Samaritan response. Now, Philip was gifted with an ability to cast out demons. Philip was gifted with a miraculous healing power. And so you had exorcisms, and you had the lame were being healed. Sounds very similar to the ministry of Jesus, doesn't it? Interesting that the response of the Samaritans was a simple one-word word called joy. And there was much joy uh, in that city. The power of the kingdom is functioning in a mighty, unique way in this story. But also, the power of the kingdom is functioning through deeds of mercy and through words. Consistent in the ministry of Jesus and the apostles was what's called a word and deed ministry. So that a church should pick up on this. Not only, you're not just a lecture platform. You're not just a place of instruction. You're not just a a gathering to hear preaching. You are, we as the church, are extending the mercy of God. And God, in his plan, gifts people in the church with the gift of mercy. And that gift of mercy is going to want to be expressed in the body of Christ. You, if you have this gift of mercy, we could talk about it, This means you have a unique compassion, a unique love, 
a unique lack of concern for your own, you know, I mean, own, own comfort. You are wanting to move out when you see someone who is disadvantaged, someone who needs help. You are moved by it. The church needs you. Here we have sort of a one kit called Philip, and he's got everything. He's got the gift of mercy, the gift of healing, the gift of preaching. He's a multi-gifted individual. Most of the time in the church, that's not how it works. Um, if the pastor tries to be omnicompetent, um, usually doesn't work that well. The church, as a body, is a voice, a proclamation place, but it's also a place where the mercy of God is distributed to our community. So, uh, this is where creativity, this is where imagination, this is where God can begin to move and stir in your heart. So when you are down at the farmer's market on Thursday night and you begin to see people and you begin to look out, look out at your town, look at where you live, and you begin to see the needs, talk to, talk to us. Get the word out. Let us begin to think. Let's get the mercy people together and let's talk uh, uh, and figure out what could we do. How could you begin to stimulate and, and encourage that expression of mercy? It's vitally important that the church be more than just a voice. It's also thinking about the needs of people. And there are plenty of, plenty of needs. This is, this is one of the ways where the spell... The spell of despair, the spell of, of cynicism, the spell of sadness can be broken in, in our day, in our age. Now, one of the unique things that happens in our passage is that um, the Samaritans believe, uh, Philip baptizes them, and then a very unique thing happens. Uh, Jerusalem has to certify this. So, you have representatives, apostles, Peter and John, who come, and they begin to, no doubt, interview people, begin to inquire about their faith, and they authorize, they demonstrate that these are credible professions of faith. It's very unique. And so, picking up our our text here in verse 14, you can see that the apostles heard that Samaria had received the word of God, and they sent Peter and John. And they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, in verse 16, whole denominations are formed. <laughs> Just to let you know. So, verse 16 might strike you as a little bit odd or unusual, or perhaps it reminds you of something that you're aware of in the evangelical church. It seems to, at least the first glance, seems to be that one can believe, and then what happens? Then, later, you receive the Holy Spirit, right? I've actually had people ask me if I have received the Holy Spirit. Um, And uh, when I respond, yes, but then they don't think I quite really understand, then uh, I am sort of looked down upon and they are praying for me. Okay? So, what, what you see here is that the apostles come and pray and then they lay their hands on these Samaritans. Now, 
Uh, are there thousands and thousands of people? We don't know. That seems like a lot of people to lay hands on. How is this actually demonstrated? Is there a large gathering? Is there a representative group of people up front? We don't know. But this is what's going on. We want to be careful of the theology of the first glance. Okay? This happened a lot in my seminary years. Like, I thought I really understood that passage, and then all of a sudden, about, you know, as I begin to be patient, begin to see the overall pattern of Scripture, I begin to see what this text is here for. For instance, in the book of Acts, there are multiple, about four, if I got this right, four manifestations of Pentecost. So, there are manifestations of the Spirit, particularly speaking in tongues, it's not recorded here, but there are manifestations of the Spirit that come subsequent to believing. So there are believers, sincere believers today, who believe this is the pattern so that a person receives the Holy Spirit on the other side of their conversion. Now, there's lots of questions about this. If they're converted, how are they converted without the Holy Spirit? That's a whole big discussion. Is everybody following what I'm saying there? So, so here, here it goes. It was vitally important that the Spirit be demonstrated in some way or another, not necessarily for the Samaritans, but for the Jews from Jerusalem. And I'll build this case as we go through the book of Acts. Because the Jews in Jerusalem are going to need convincing proof that non-Jews are the real deal as Christians. Now that might be quite surprising for us, but this is a manifestation to demonstrate that the kingdom is the kingdom is the kingdom. There is no Jewish Christianity. There's no Gentile Christianity. There is one Christianity. And the model for them, as the Jews who believed and saw the Spirit, was Acts chapter 2. And those, those were Jewish conversions. And that became... The, the paradigm by which they understood a person was the real deal. So now what God does is he, pro, he provides many, many Pentecosts as they go into non-Jewish territories to convince the Jews that these conversions are legitimate. All right, that's my, that's my thesis, all right? So as, we, as this unfolds, let's see if that, that, if that holds true, all right? And the question for us today is, does God intend for this to be normative in the church today? Does that make sense? That's a key word. Is, is it normative? For instance, in the verse there, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. Do you see that? And it doesn't say they were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, at times, the... the the human authors of the Bible will use shorthand to uh, get, the, get the word across. This doesn't mean that we... And, and there are churches that... I don't know if you ever come across a church like this, but it's called the Jesus-only church. Um, and I didn't know what that... I, I mean, I've been a minister for 10 years. I didn't know what a Jesus-only church was. Do you, does anyone know what a Jesus-only church is? It comes from this text. This means that you are only baptized in the name of Jesus. 
What could be more clear? It's right here. Am I getting into theological weeds here? Interesting, isn't it? So, we're sort of like these theology machines. We're always constantly trying to figure out these things. And the book of Acts is a vitally important book. But we want to interpret the book of Acts in light of the epistles and the gospels. And we want to be careful as we watch the book of Acts because it has a historical context that actually makes it much richer to appreciate what God's doing. And we want to ask the question, is this normative for the church? Well, Simon, he's a a big question too. Because the Bible tells us, it tells us that Simon believed. Verse 13. And he was baptized. And then, he, then when he sees, and we're not sure what this was that he saw, but he sees the Spirit fall upon people. And this passage doesn't tell us what that was. But Simon saw this. And he's the control guy. He, he's used to having everyone, everyone's attention. Um... And he comes up to Peter and says, hey, I got some cash. Um, what, does it, what does it cost to have this ability? I can, I can provide that for you. Now, the question is, Peter's response is, wow, pretty, pretty close to condemning him. In fact, uh, the word H-E-L-L is actually in the original uh, In other words, may you and your money go to... Sounds like swearing, doesn't it? The original actually sounds like that. So here's the deal. Was Simon a believer? The real deal. Now, this is again more of a debate. How could a, how could how could a Christian ask this? Could, that, could a real Christian ask this question? Would a real Christian... Right, we can go on and on with this... And it is a stern, rugged rebuke of this man saying, you are as far from walking with God as a Christian can get. So, I'll let let you be the jury on that. Scholars continue to debate this. Was Simon the real deal? But... He is, let me, let me start with the premise that he is a believer, and he is simply, radically immature in his faith. And he is still dealing, as all of us are, with the vestiges of sinfulness. He is still recovering from his addiction to people's approval and controlling and manipulating people. And he sees this as a, a way to get back into prominence in Samaria. So this is how he has lived. I'm not excusing his behavior. And so he, he has fallen into old patterns of sin that, uh, that I think we can all identify with. So Peter rebukes him. And then there's a beautiful conclusion to this section where John and Peter visit other cities. And we're not really sure what city this was in Samaria. And then they visit these cities and they begin to preach the gospel there. It's a beautiful, beautiful conclusion to the passage. Now let me wrap this up. I want you to all be like Philip. I want to be like Philip. 
I want you to begin to think very differently if this is new to you, that you would think in terms of where is God calling you to extend a friendship, to build a relationship because of God's love for people out of a concern for that person, out of a care for that person, begin to build a relationship. And I think the world of evangelism is really just good conversations. It's not a technique. It's not a uh, sort of a kit. It's, it's really just good conversations. And in those conversations, what you discover is God has done a prior work before you ever came around. And I'll finish with this, is that I am continually amazed how God sets up conversations for me. Um, And it feels like I am not really doing that much at all. But that the conversation is out of my control and I am just responding to questions and the person is already being led to the truth. I'll give you one uh, illustration. And um, We were in, in Turkey uh, years ago as a family, and I was hanging around a jewelry, uh, jewelry store, um, looking at the items in, this, in this, uh, the rings and the stuff there, and I began a conversation with about a 24-year-old woman there. Um, we're out in the middle of the country, in the middle, out in the way out in the country, not in the city. And she uh, she begins to show me her English books. She's been learning English. She's used, been using a first, second grade English books. She's been trying to learn English. And so she's practicing her English with me. And she's asking me, why does the verb to go? In past tense, why is it went? <laughs> She's just trying to understand English. I said, welcome to English. <laughs> and, uh, and then in the middle of this, about 5 o'clock in the afternoon, again, I'm just talking about jewelry. We're talking about verbs in English, and that's, that's all that's going on here. Um, the Muslim call to prayer is going on. And um, out of the blue, she says, do you have a Bible? I said, yeah, we have a Bible. She says, can I have that Bible? I said, yes, you can. I was giving Maris's Bible away. And uh, I said, tomorrow night I'll bring you a Bible, yes. And then, uh, this is during the Muslim call to prayer. She says this, Islam it's never did anything for me. Pretty scary thing for her to say and perhaps me to listen to. And then she says, why did they kill Jesus? She said, we saw on television a program and they killed Jesus and my family were all crying. Why did they kill Jesus? Now what have I done? Have I been the master evangelist in this situation? No. 
of course, I gave her an answer. And then the next night, we were able for a couple of hours to learn verbs from the Bible. And we opened to 1 Peter randomly. I just turned to any passage in the Bible. I said, her name was Esra. I said, Esra, you can learn anything about English from any page in the Bible. So here we go. Let's just start in 1 Peter. And I just randomly opened it up. And there it was. And it says, and this is Peter. And he addresses the regions that he's writing to. And we were in the region of Cappadocia. And it says there in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, to the Cappadocians. And I turned the Bible around to her and I said, Esra, the Bible was written to you. And that was literally true. God is at work leading you. There is an aspect of your life that is very much like Philip's. And what is needed is this. What is needed is the fullness of a, of a heart that's warmed, of a heart that, that, that is happy in the gospel, that is anticipating God leading. See, that's all that's needed. As I interacted with Esra, I began to realize and I began to repent of, Lord, I think I'm on vacation as a Christian. That's not true. And God is leading us during times when we, didn't, we may not have anticipated. He is working. He's continuing because he has a passion to reach lost people. And great conversations are ahead. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Let's pray. Lord, uh, throughout this service, we have wanted to be filled with you. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit not some strange experience, but really quite a human experience. To be filled with the Spirit includes repenting, includes boldness, courage. Father, I'm grateful that you can surprise us. As I was surprised that day across that jewelry counter, um, Father, I ask you would Give us a new sense of mission. Give us the very spirit that you gave Philip. Um, Thank you, Father, that you are the one who's behind the scenes. You take our tiredness. You take our exhaustion. You take our indifference. And you begin to fill us and give us new strength. Thank you for this remarkable gospel. Uh, Help us to um, be strengthened even as we take the Lord's Supper. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.